the shit you love. The podcast of the series of the graphic novel of the album where I get to crap on about anything I like. Hello. You're still listening to this? Amazing. Well, welcome then. Here we are at episode 6, Fucking Annoying. In the previous episode, I was talking about my debut as drummer in our first band, Abroz. Progressive rock, the most show-offy musical style of all, played by people who couldn't play their instruments. I said that this was a particularly radical, situationist approach we were taking, although we didn't mean it at the time. It wasn't, however, without precedent. There was, of course, the Portsmouth Sinfonia, an ensemble occasionally joined by Brian Eno, who attempted classical music on instruments they couldn't play. was also Sprach Zarathustra by the composer Richard Strauss, in case you hadn't figured it out. I have this plan one day, when I haven't got a new project to work on, say when I'm dead, to make an album of virtuoso rock music, perhaps metal or jazz fusion, where everyone is playing with incredible skill, precision and melody, except it's wrong. How will I achieve this? by application of the Devil's Harmony. Now, dear listener, if you're a musician or have any knowledge of music theory, just pop away now and put on the kettle, because I'm about to insult your intelligence. You see, I don't have any knowledge of music theory, even though I did a year of music theory at Monash University. We had a tutor who acted, and even looked, like a 50s maths teacher a fondness for shorts and walk socks. His method of getting you to remember your key signatures was by the time-honoured teaching technique of fear. He would give tests and berate you for not doing your homework. If corporal punishment hadn't been recently banned, I'm sure he would have been up for a spot of the old caning too. All of this, of course, didn't go down well with us students, who were soft-bellied recipients of Gough Whitlam's free education for all, in an era when university was meant to be about expanding your mind, not expanding your wallet. We were used to lounging around the union caf, skipping classes and complaining about the sheer preposterousness of having to get up to attend an 11am lecture. Was I, 
a recently converted punk devotee with lofty ideals of sticking it to the man, going to be told what to do by a hectoring dictator in fawn-coloured walk socks? Absolutely. I got my best results in his class. I did my homework. I passed my tests. Shit, I didn't want to get yelled at. His teaching method was extremely effective. I haven't retained a single fucking thing. I know less about music theory than Scott Morrison knew about the bushfires. And I'm going to presume that you, dear listener, if you're still here, are in the same boat as me. A musical nincompoop. And I'm going to reveal to you the secret of the devil's harmony. It's all about the semitone. A semitone is the musical gap between two keys on a piano, between E and F, or between F and F sharp. By the way, there are 12 notes in this Western musical scale, known as the chromatic scale. 12 notes on a piano, A to G, and five of them are sharps. I've no fucking idea why it doesn't just go from A to L. But then Mr. Walksox did a shit job, and I don't know my musical theory. Anyway, a semitone is a wonderful weapon in the wrong hands. Take two people together playing the same bit of music. Get one of them to play at a semitone higher or lower and bingo. You're starting to feel a strange uprising in your bowels. It's Mr. Beelzebub. Let me demonstrate. Let's take a very sweet piece of music, one which you might have heard before. Yesterday Yesterday, a voice and an acoustic guitar. Now, let's take one of those parts and move it a semitone. Yesterday, all my troubles seem so far away. There sure is a shadow hanging over you, Paul. It's the shadow of Satan. So, my plan is to take a group of fantastic musicians, record them separately, and get some of them to play in time, perfectly executed, but a semitone different. I'd also love to do a machine precision techno dance album where all of the beats are slightly out of time with each other. Pop that on at your Byron Bay Doofest and see the trust fund kibbutz kids cough up their lentils. I am, of course, a fucking weird person. Much to my disgust, and I should have known, there is a musical genre to describe people like me. It's called outsider music, and 99% of it I hate. Except for my favourite, an unknown chap by the name of Y. Beckhurst. Those no today, those no, those no to be, those no 
Outsider music is just carte blanche for fuckwits who can't play their instruments. But not old Y Beckhurst. In my opinion, Y is ahead of us all. He's seen past the tyranny of conventional rhythm and melody. He leaves us flailing in his wake because he has ability but leaves it at the hat check desk. When I listen to Y, I hear everything in the track is playing in time with something, but not the same thing. Radiohead, are you taking notes? But the rest of outsider music, I don't know. Outsider music. Preconception challenging, intellectually valid, or just fucking annoying. Fucking annoying! In this week's episode of the web series, our post-anti-hero is having a bad day. He's just been fired from his own TV series and now he finds his wife is divorcing him on the grounds that he's fucking annoying. It's a small step forward for the plot. Because I believe you're meant to have conflict for a plot to move forward, so I bunged in two bits of conflict in a fortnight. But really, it's an opportunity for me to sneak in a list of things that I find fucking annoying. It's the album's first appearance centre stage of the great Tony Martin, displaying his fine rhythmic chops chiming in Beasties style on the song's procession of annoyances. Those of you that saw the disco machine in pre-plague days would be well familiar with Tony's integral role in the live shows, and on this album he's a real presence, as opposed to one of the cameo guests. I quite like the fact that some of Tony's comedic colleagues were a bit puzzled when he first joined the disco machine. You're in a band? What do you do? I like to think that I'm doing my bit to highlight Tony's true status as the renaissance man of entertainment. There doesn't seem to be anything he can't do rather fantastically well. Including fucking annoying. What do I find fucking annoying? Fuck all of your reasons I lost my shit, you know I didn't mean it Now I see it Oh well, there is that. It may not surprise you to know that I find quite a few things fucking annoying. I just selected a few of them for the song, but really, I mean, where do you stop? I find sport fucking annoying. I love it, but I find it fucking annoying. Let's take, for instance, Bruce McAvaney, Channel 7's most celebrated sports commentator, until recently, star of their AFL coverage. Apparently a lovely guy, and everyone farewelled him with such affectionate sadness when he quit commentating the football. Me, I was leaping for joy, though tinged with exhaustion from 20 years of having to endure Bruce McAvaney over-egg every call, waiting to pounce on and violently over-exaggerate the merest crumb of a highlight, slavering over the exploits of his 
select McAvaney club of uber favourites, ignoring the rest of the play in the hope that your ablets, your buddies, your eddies, your riolis would get near the ball so he could push his cohorts off the mic and send the hyperbole metre into the red with another strangely wolfman-voiced McAvaney orgasm. Rioli picks himself up and dribbles, and even when Cyril dribbles, it's a beautiful thing. Call me weird, but I happen to think sport is exciting to watch, even with the sound off. McAvaney's calls went so far beyond enhancing the spectacle, they became their own spectacle, like a man masturbating outside a chemist. Well, I hope this stays in. It does. Keep going. Oh, yes. Now it gets really interesting. Two bounces. He'll caress it down someone's throat, and he does, and they've got six. Yep, six. Peter Drury is the Bruce McAvaney of English football. He turns up to every match with a series of phrases of giant significance, which he pulls out to make some bloke sticking a ball in a net sound like the invention of penicillin. I love a good voiceover, but it has to be done with style. I should know, I was once the voice of kickboxing. My favourite commentator of all time was an Englishman by the name of Hugh Johns. In the 70s, when I was a teenage soccer nut, I didn't mind being stuck at home at 11.30 on a Saturday night because there was my mate Hugh Johns with this week's run-of-the-mill game from the Midlands on Star Soccer. Obviously, my affection for Hugh is as much time and place as his innate quality. Nostalgia is so much about where you were and who you were when you first heard something you love, which is a theme I'll return to in these podcasts. But Hugh was objectively a great commentator. He had that rich, sonorous voice with a hint of cigarettes and whiskey, much like the wonderful Toast of London. He never, as they say, gilded the lily with excessive emoting. Unlike McAvaney, Hugh understood that the difference between a World Cup final and a midweek second division clash between Notts County and Carlisle required a different application of tone, nuance and gravitas. With Hugh, you got the impression that he was calling the same game you were watching, good or bad, and there was no fuckwit from the network behind him with a clipboard saying, we need more emotion. Hugh used few words and used them well. Oh, what a nice bit of work. Oh, yes, he enjoyed that one. Oh, yes. Beautifully done. Bob Hatton. one And he always marked the opening of the game's scoring with a beautifully clipped, brisk one nothing. It's one nothing. one nothing. Brad Worthington, one nothing. When Hugh passed away, so did the art of nuanced commentary. And not just in sport. Now, in every walk of life, on every screen, small or large, in every headline, every conversation, every new idea that springs from the masses, it's all Bruce McAvaney. My own favourite teams, of course, I find fucking annoying. Not just because they lose, I'm fucking annoyed by the fact that my team, the St Kilda Football Club, keeps subtly dicking around with the design of its jumper, 
so that it seems like a traditional design, but isn't. The St Kilda Crest, the brand of the club for nearly a century, once the only such crest worn by any club in the league, is now the same shitty little size as every other club in the league who started wearing crests about 10 years ago. Bit by bit, the St Kilda Crest got smaller and smaller, So it's now dwarfed by the logo of Asbestos Chips or whoever is sponsoring the club this year. The three vertical panels of the St Kilda jumper, red, white, black, are now two and a half panels, red, anorexic strip of white, black. And it was fucking annoying when I tried to send an email about this to the club and I got a reply from some marketing person who obviously thought I was some mad pensioner complaining about the modern world. Actually, I am some mad pensioner complaining about the modern world. Speaking of which, what do I find fucking annoying? Continuous improvement. You might have noticed already, it gets a Guernsey in the previous episode, and given the fact that I'm always complaining about work, you'll find it one of the most often repeated phrases in my recorded career. Well, apart from fuck which I managed to fit 88 times into the three minutes of fucking annoying, surely an Olympic record. Hell, Beck Chapman even sneaks in a couple that weren't on the lyric sheet. Some people work to create life-saving vaccines. I see how many times I can say fuck in a pop song. We all have our calling. For some people, it's continuous improvement. Continuous improvement. So what's my problem? For starters, it's the phrase itself. It's illogical. I don't mind illogical stuff when it leads to fun. But let me assure you, continuous improvement never leads to fun. Continuous improvement is logically impossible. I appreciate that Olympic world records continue to be broken. But let's imagine they can be broken continuously. Eventually, swimmers would be finishing before they started. Improvement is a finite concept. It cannot be done continuously. But like all phrases that fuck the language, like, say, emotional intelligence, some prick in private sector corporate hell or a TED talk or a business seminar dreamed it up to hoodwink and intimidate unbrainy people into paying them gazillions for a consulting job. And... Because we're all sheep, it became an accepted part of the lexicon of business speak. And whatever starts in swanky-wanky private sector business will eventually get super-spread like some lockdown-protesting COVID breather into everyday language, so that even the most honourable professions and charities and not-for-profit organisations go around preaching the religion of continuous improvement. Why is continuous improvement so attractive. You run a business selling asbestos chips in various flavours from potato to uh, cheese and onion and so on. Someone else comes along and applies the disruption business model don't get me started on that word again and sells asbestos chips cheaper. Now you're fucked. How can you sell your asbestos chips for less but still make the same profit? You can't pay your workers less, someone will notice and you'll end up like George Columbaris. Here's the solution. Set up a culture of continuous improvement. 
put it all in your marketing propaganda. You asked, we listened. We value your feedback. It helps us continuously improve. Eventually, your workers will be parroting it to one another and you achieve your goal. They make more asbestos chips for the same wages. You charge the public less, but make the same profit. Continuous improvement. It's the extra plastic divider in the chalky biscuit packet. I applied the principles of continuous improvement to fucking annoying. I kept rewriting the song even after it was good enough. Because when it comes to bossing myself around, well, I'm a bit of a prick. I originally got the idea for the song from a little melody in my head. I was listening to the Macarena one day, and instead of, Hey Macarena, I started to sing, Fucking Annoying. I thought it was fun, so I changed the melody from, Fucking Annoying, to, Fucking Annoying, and bunged a few chords underneath, and it started to grow into a song in my head. A litany of things that I find fucking annoying just tumbled out from there. I then arranged it into a sort of punky power pop kind of thing. played a lousy version of this at a live gig once. Well, it was a sort of live gig. It was one of the performances we did for Parlour. Uh, what would you call it? A venture. Where people could request their favourite artist for a private performance for selected friends in the comfort of their own home or backyard or hired venue. It was supposedly a way for everyone to have a great time. You and your friends get to see your favourite artist on your own turf without having to mingle with strangers and pay ridiculous bar prices, and the performer gets to enjoy intimate shows with people who truly appreciate them, with no hecklers and no demanding venue owners tut-tutting about the headcount. It was set up so the artist could name their fee, and the punter got what they were paying for. And of course, the parlour organisation got paid too. I mean, they did the organising. Except, here's how it worked out. The disco machine, a stadium-sized, multifaceted audio-visual extravaganza, was squashed into some tiny backyard space where our video screen was useless, with a PA system so small we couldn't hear each other, or a hall owned by some bloke who threatened to pull the gig unless we played at the volume of a small TV in a pub. So, at every one of the gigs we did, we looked and sounded shithouse. But that's not all. We paid for the privilege. When people ask me about doing a private function, it's always hard to name a fee. What are we worth? How do you judge that? At the very least, I have to try and set a fee so I can pay each member in the band something. Not what they're worth, but something. And there's a lot of them in the disco machine. I ain't no folk singer have guitar will travel type. So for this project, I had to name a fee. 
For argument's sake, let's say it was 100 bucks. It was rather a bit more than that, but it was still lower than I would normally charge because these were truly dedicated fans and, you know, it just would have felt bad. I figured that if we did a lot of these little shows, I could accumulate enough band wages to make them feel reasonably rewarded. So, I tell the organisers, let's say for the purpose of this example, 100 bucks. The organisers then ask the punter, how many people will be coming? The punter says, 100. The organisers go, right, 100 bucks, 100 guests, so you can charge them one buck a head. The punter charges their friends one buck a head. 30 turn up. Damien gets paid 30 bucks. Obviously, this business model was applying the principles of continuous improvement. I certainly don't blame the punters, who were all lovely people and very nice to us, and assumed we were getting paid properly, and I probably don't even blame the organisers in the end, who thought they were acting in good faith. I was just too stupid to see it coming. Anyway, maybe the traumatic events of that performance of the song Fucking Annoying in its first incarnation caused me to want to continuous improve it the fuck out of there. So I channeled a bit of my favourite 80s hip-hop and gave the song a complete makeover. If there's any of you out there who like the original version better, well, sorry about that, it's continuous improvement. I'd like to think I've been continuously improving since Abroz. You might disagree. Abroz didn't last very long because we started to actually figure out how to play our instruments and suddenly we wanted to be a proper rock band. We're going to start this happy vibes right from the root. Yeah. What was a proper rock band meant to be like? Well, to a bunch of teenage boys in the 70s, there was no better template than Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin could have been created using a step-by-step handbook entitled How to Impress a Teenage Boy. Huge, bombastic, heavy rock music, lyrics about hobbits, technical whiz-bangery, not a single woman in sight but plenty of rumours about pleasuring groupies with live fish reeled in from one's waterside hotel window, and of course, the mystery. The mystery was absolutely crucial to the allure of the Zepp. By the time they got to their fourth album, they were such a megalithic, world-dominating band that they didn't even bother to give the album a title or put their name on the cover anywhere. Just a bunch of squiggles that were referred to in hushed, reverential tones as runic symbols. There might not have been any band name or title on the thing, but the album flew off the shelves into the homes of teenage boys around the world who eagerly slapped the vinyl disc on their turntable in a state of palpitating anticipation. And what was the first thing they heard? Only the bits I love. The first thing the teenage boy heard when he played the unnamed fourth album by the world's most ginormous band was this. A sort of scary, weird, backwardy tape excerpt, a little fanfare of occulty foreboding to pronounce the long-awaited entrance of the giants of giant rock. Straight after it, 
the ridiculously high voice of Robert Plant, Banshee wails from the top of a mountain, and the planet-sized Led Zepp tank crashes into your bedroom. Like millions of other teenage boys who heard it first in the 70s, that little backwardy sound still today gives me a weird sense of anticipation. We're going to start this happy vibes right from the root. Yeah. Meanwhile, in 1976, out in Springvale, behind a garage roller door in a house in St John's Avenue, four teenage boys dreaming of being Led Zeppelin launch their own dirigible into the stratosphere. And this mighty band is called Kestrel Hawk. Kestrel Hawk. What the fuck? What does that have to do with anything? None of us owned a budgie, let alone a Kestrel Hawk. In fact, the bird isn't even called a Kestrel Hawk. Not that good on my bird knowledge, but I'm pretty sure Kestrel and Hawk are two different birds. It'd be like calling the band Raven Parrot. Actually, that's not bad, you know. Raven Parrot. Anyone out there looking for a name for their math rock band, well, you're welcome to it would have been a far better name in hindsight than Kestrel Hawk. I'll tell you more about that next time. See ya. You've been listening to Only the Shit You Love, the podcast. If you want to see the series or buy the music, go to campsite.bio forward slash Damien Cow DC. See you next time.